terrifically potent new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. Medea reveals how and why the U.S. has become such a curious partner of Saudi Arabia, a country long infamous for brutally repressing women and dissidents, supporting terrorists worldwide, and promoting the most extreme form of Islam. Medea will speak at a KPFA benefit, co-sponsored by Code Pink on Tuesday, November 15th at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley. This event is wheelchair accessible, and tickets are available at brownpapertickets.com and supportive indie bookshops. Full information is available on the KPFA website, kpfa.org. Come join me and the KPFA community for an evening with fearless activist Medea Benjamin on November 15th. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz, and online at kpfa.org. The time is a minute past 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up. In darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is October the 25th, 2016. And we are still in the midst, in the swamp, in the maelstrom, maelstrom. Oh, yes, of this presidential election storm and stress. Yes, yes. Every four years, we have this kind of civil war in which <clears throat> the candidates are almost, almost beside the point. Who needs them? Uh, the point, the issue, seems to be uh, to fight, to carry on the battle for men's minds. Ah. Uh-huh. Interferes, yes, women's bodies always comes into it, of course, whether to believe if the women have minds at all. That part is difficult. I love Samuel Beckert. Beckett. He has such fun with men and women. Here is a little snippet from Samuel Beckett. Question, do women have souls? Answer, yes. Question, To what end? For what reason? Answer. So that they may be damned. I have a little piece to read you from Mark Twain. That's the little section that ends that men are fools and women are damn fools. Anyway, I hope I have time to 
read you that because Mark Twain is my favorite feminist, absolutely. Uh, I am a little disappointed, frankly, that the possibility of a woman in the White House is not being seen as a victory for liberals, for progressives. <laughs> a number of them think that Hillary is the Antichrist. Barack Obama's brilliant arrival on the national scene was greeted with ah, ecstasy, real joy. I, I saw tears and cheers and dancing in the streets. On the other hand, this woman thing, this is too deep, too ancient, too ancient uh, divide, division, split, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think I go back to the very beginning. Women were the first underclass, if you see what I mean, the first group of second-class citizens. Uh, Actually, I think we are born women, in spite of what Simone de Beauvoir writes. Uh, She says that uh, we learn to be women. Uh, I think that we uh, learn or know that we are women uh, before we can talk. Enough, enough feminism. Uh, it just makes matters worse, especially right now. <laughs> I. I was talking to a young woman the other day and it's the same old, same old and gave her a book to read and a little bit of glorious dynam and she said, oh, oh, is this going to make me hate men? I said, no, no, dear. If women hated men, it would all be over by Friday. The trouble is, yes, how they love them, uh, 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 I guess, I guess, uh, I guess that the women who are refusing to vote for Hillary, uh, they, they don't say it's because she's a woman. Uh, they always say that they're just rejecting her because she's Hillary. But always, always, sooner or later, they say they don't trust her. I learned that from my father and his friends. They said, you never trust a woman. Now, for me, this election is a no-brainer. The president's job description is just basically damage control. Uh, Well, it's what Barack has done. Uh, And, of course, the president, head of state, must earn the respect of... All the other nations watching us, they watch us with trepidation. Oh, God, what's America going to do? What is the United States up to? The civil strife in which we are uh, indulging ourselves, wallowing in, does absolutely nothing to help our status around the globe. Uh, And we insist on using the excuse, the excuse of this... uh, election to, uh, what is it, uh, not just tear each other apart like a dysfunctional family, but to, you know, express our anger and hostility about things in general. Uh, 
I think, I always think it is such a waste, all this energy, the expression of our, uh, what is that, uh, fed-upness. Oh, it's all this sort of aggression that could be spent in so many wise ways. Instead, I I see friendships, uh, friendships dissolving, relationships breaking up, all for an issue that hardly merits an hour of our time. It's also rather frightening, these, uh, what do we call them, mini riots, mini riots. I looked in my history book, and back in 1854, there were many, um, what do you call that, uh, let's call them riots, fusses, uh, between, let's see, the abolitionists, they were angry with the slavery advocates, and the slavery advocates, they wanted a popular vote to decide whether Kansas would be a slave state or not. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And it calls, yeah, for a popular vote, yes. Uh, the expansion of slavery was really a, what is it, a, a hot issue at the time. You can see why. Uh, in any case, in any case, I just wanted to say today that it is extremely important to vote. Uh, I think I, I think I, uh, I neglected to vote in 1968. Do you remember what was going on then? We, we were so convinced that we would wake up the next morning, we would have a revolution, and the next day all, all would be changed. Nowadays, politics and the effort we make to do little things like vote. Uh, all that's like brushing your teeth. It might help. What the hell? Uh, but don't let politics ruin your personal life or make you lose friends. I always remember this letter I read. Uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, the poet, you know, down in the uh, Greenwich Village. She's writing to her lover, and she writes... I will love you always, no matter what party is in power. I think that says it all. Uh, I have tried to collect my thoughts about our national neurosis. Call it a national disability. We pride ourselves on our open-minded, generous national character, our heritage. All are welcome, yes. Uh, you're tired, you're poor. When I grew up, we were the good guys. I mean, not really, of course, but we insisted on that image. We put on that face. To see my country, my home, become heartless is difficult for me. Ah... Uh, America, I mean North America, it's the great experiment we keep telling ourselves. It's going to be something new, brave new world. Now, Thomas Jefferson warned us. Uh, he told us what we might become over time, you know, certain 
selfish interests. I still hold out hope. Uh, well, I have no choice but to hope that at least Democrats can act democratically and that the critical mass of Americans still recognize justice when they see it. Now, we have <laughs> this week, there, no, wait a minute, last week, two weeks ago, my favorite, my favorite indication of hope, our little blue flag uh, waving in the wind, is we have given the world a new Nobel Prize winner. There aren't too many uh, Nobel Prizes for literature. In 1993 was Toni Morrison, but... Actually, 2016's Nobel Prize for Literature went to Bob Dylan. Now, that does give me hope. Hope, yes, that the best, the best Americans can see themselves and we can uh, see the marriage of the sacred and the profane, you know. Ah, we recognize all our ex existential flaws. And we, Dylan, Bob Dylan, has made art of them. Yes, indeed. Uh, anyway, at least in Sweden, uh, they see us for, well, not just what we are, but what we could be. The songs of Bob Dylan... They mean so much to so many. It seems wrong, you know, to say that he's our New Age Walt Whitman. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Uh, all our madness and our confusion, all our greed and our grace, uh, he puts all this into words somehow. And the songs, the sound, yes, I always say, the sound makes the sense. It's the angst, yes, angst for the memory. It's the sorrow of all this knowledge. Uh, oh, yes, a little subtlety, a little irony. <laughs> something, yes, something that the, uh, the honorable... Donald Trump does not understand irony. Yes, anyway. I mean, how can we forgive Americans who gave us this individual, this Donald Trump? Is he our native son? Is that man the spawn of America the beautiful? I mean, where is the Petri dish or the environment or conditions which produced that uh, gentleman and are we cultivating more just like him I saw a cluster of his pals uh, surrounding him after the last debate they were there with their young trophy wives uh, <laughs> they, they were all patting each other on the back you know silverbacks Yes, all together in a gang. Is it a gang or a cabal? Or I think legally, I mean, officially, it's an oligarchy. That is, yes, uh, what language for these new times is so difficult. Uh, 
Yes. Monarchy, I always like the sound of the term monarchy, but I, I think, yes, I think that's preferable to dictatorship, I'm sure. Donald would prefer to be a monarch, yes. Anyway, these folks, these oligarchs, they would return our nation to the state uh, of what the world was for millennia. That is uh, a situation where a very few rule, just a handful, maybe, maybe as much as eight percent in good good times in history and all the rest all the rest are subservient you know peasants subjects in fact they're too poor to put up much resistance uh never mind never mind no more grief things fall apart the center will not hold will not fold I I need to keep looking at reading people who just cheer me up, cheer me up. Things that make me think that before before my time is up, I will see some wondrous things. The inauguration, say, of Hillary Clinton with all all the fun folks there, uh, singing and dancing. I have in my hand a little piece by Rebecca Walker. Uh, Yes, indeed, Rebecca Walker. She's the daughter of Alice Walker. And uh, she tried to put together something she called third wave feminism. I hope they're there to celebrate the inauguration of Hillary Clinton. Anyway, Alice Walker. She writes, Becoming the Third Wave. Now, this is back in 1992. It's when Hillary and Bill came to the White House. Hillary said, Politics should be fun. (laughs) Anyway, this is a little piece about uh, Alice. Well, let's see. Actually, it's about Anita Hill. It's about Rebecca Walker being very upset about Clarence Thomas. Do you remember that back in 92? That was the uh, the worst scene. I've talked about it before. Clarence Thomas got a seat on the Supreme Court. It only took them a week to vet this conservative and put him on the court in Thurgood Marshall's old seat. And it was a scandal. Um, it was particularly painful for women Let's see. Let me read you this little bit, an introduction to Rebecca's essay. When the African-American lawyer Anita Hill testified to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee in 1992 that Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her, the interrogation of Hill by those male legislators and their disbelief of her charges uh, catalyzed feminist activism around the country. In addition to inspiring women to run for office, the Hill-Thomas testimonies unleashed personal stories of sexual harassment in the workplace and on the streets. A footnote here is 
just as they are doing once again in the case of Donald Trump. Yes, <laughs> he, he doesn't seem to be suffering too much from this, uh, this, well, the video, I guess, was the worst. Uh, it would seem to me that the accusations of these women would wipe him off the map. But what do I know? I actually thought that Anita Hill was enough to stop the, uh, <laughs> well, I guess, I guess the women were so dismayed by the treatment of Anita Hill. Uh, oh, gee, I just threw up my hands anyway. Then college student Rebecca Walker, daughter of the acclaimed African-American feminist writer Alice Walker, she called for young women to create this third wave of feminism. Rebecca Walker rejected the idea of post-feminism. She worked to engage young women in politics. After launching a voter registration campaign to counter youth apathy, Walker and others created the Third Wave Foundation to help finance young women's political projects. In 1995, Walker published an anthology. It's titled, To Be Real, Telling the Truth, Changing the Face of Feminism. This helped popularize third wave feminism in the United States. Now, I was going to say, whatever happened to that, I guess I blinked. And it was gone. Uh, anyway, here's Rebecca Walker writing about her experience. She says, I'm not one of the people who sat transfixed before television watching those Senate hearings. I had classes to go to, papers to write, and frankly, the whole thing was too painful. A black man grilled by a panel of white men about his sexual deviance. A black woman claiming harassment and being discredited by other women. I could not bring myself to watch that sensationalized assault on the human spirit. To me, the hearings were not about determining whether or not Clarence Thomas did, in fact, harass Anita Hill. They were about checking and redefining the extent of women's credibility and power. Can a woman's experience undermine a man's career? <laughs> yes, I think of the, yes, the bimbos. Do you remember the bimbo? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, can a woman's voice, a woman's sense of self-worth and injustice, challenge a structure predicated upon the subjugation of our gender? Anita Hill's testimony threatened to do that and more. If Thomas had not been confirmed, every man in the United States would be at risk. I mean, how many senators never told a sexist joke? How many men have not used their protected male privilege to thwart in some way the influence or the ideas of a woman colleague, friend, or relative. 
for those whose sense of power is so obviously connected to the health and vigor of the penis, it would have been a metaphoric catastrophe. Of course, this is too great a threat. Now, while some may laud the whole spectacle for the consciousness it raised around sexual harassment, its very real outcome is more informative. He was promoted. She was repudiated. He's sitting on that court, quarter of a century now. He looks very healthy, lived for a long time. Ah, done deal. Thus men were assured of the inviolability of their penis power. Women were admonished to keep their experiences to themselves. <laughs> indeed, indeed. The backlash against U.S. women is real as the misconception of equality between the sexes becomes more ubiquitous, so does the attempt to restrict the boundaries of women's personal and political power. Thomas's confirmation, the ultimate rally of support for the male paradigm of harassment, this sends a clear message to women. Shut up. Even if you speak, we will not listen. My footnote here, I looked up the word clitoris, uh, just to be sure, you know, uh, I have spoken of this, uh, yes, woman power at other times, but I was shocked to find in my little Webster Dictionary that one of, well, I think the first definition of clitoris is to shut up. That can't be possible. That absolutely can't be possible. I'm going to write to the publishers and find out what happened. <laughs> Alice, Alice Walker writes, I will not be silenced. Yes, indeed. Women who talk too much. Yes. That's moi. And Rebecca Walker goes on to say, I acknowledge the fact that we live under siege. I intend to fight back. I have uncovered and unleashed more repressed anger than I thought possible. For the umpteenth time, I have been radicalized, politicized, shaken awake. I have come to voice again. And this time, my voice is not conciliatory. The night after Thomas's confirmation, I asked the man I am intimate with what he thinks of the whole message. Uh, his concern is primarily with Thomas's propensity to demolish civil rights and opportunities for people of color. Huh. I launch into a tirade. When will progressive black men prioritize my rights and well-being? When will they stop talking so damn much about the race as if it revolved exclusively around them? He tells me I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I scream, I need to know. 
Are you with me? Or are you going to help them try to destroy me? The next section of this essay, <laughs> I don't have time to read. It's fascinating. It's about her riding on a train, sitting next to a little girl and listening to uh, the talk of the men. And finally, she breaks, she breaks silence and she tells these guys, kind of frightening, uh, that it's the wrong thing, you know, to talk that way in front of a little, what I guess would be a nine-year-old. Uh, anyway, yes, I ain't your sweetheart. I ain't your bitch. I ain't your baby. How dare you have the nerve to sit up here and talk about women that way and then try to speak to me. This goes on at great length. I hope I have time to read the whole thing soon. And Mark Twain, too. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. All the real Indians died off. You believe that? Of course not. It's the wry title of a new book by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and Dina Gilio Whitaker, two American Indian women writers. All the real Indians died off, and 20 other myths about Native Americans. Both women will discuss the book on Tuesday evening, October 25th, 7.30 p.m. at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. This KPFA benefit with free parking and wheelchair access will be hosted by Flashpoint's own Miguel Gavilan Molina. Advance tickets at brownpapertickets.com and all our supportive indie bookstores. That'll be October 25th, Roxanne.